I want to ask you two questions, and if your answer to either of these questions is yes, then please respond by raising your hand. First question, does God answer every single one of your prayers? Ah, we have some divided opinions. (laughs) Some of you do think God answers every prayer. Some of you aren't so sure. So let me ask a second question. Do you sometimes pray diligently and passionately and it seems like God doesn't answer? I'll admit to that one. Prayer isn't easy. And sometimes it does seem like our prayers aren't answered. And if we are praying diligently and passionately about an issue that is important to us, and it seems like God is not responding, it can be heartbreaking and disappointing and confusing. Here's something I've learned, though. When I say, God did not answer my prayer, what I'm really saying is, God did not give me what I asked for which means I might actually be getting an answer. And the answer might be no. And that raises a bunch of questions. Why would God sometimes say no to our prayers? And in those cases, if he does say no, when he does say no, how do we respond? What do we do with that? That's the issue we want to explore this morning. We want to understand how to respond and deal with the know of God. And we're going to begin by taking a look at some biblical principles so we can discover some of the reasons why God sometimes says no. We're going to begin in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 3. This is James writing his letter of instruction to the church, and he says, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James tells us that sometimes there's a very good reason we don't get what we ask for. Our motives are wrong. We're asking God to give us what we want instead of simply asking him to meet our needs. And in fact, instead of aligning our will with God's will, we pray as if God should align his will with ours. And that gets the purpose of prayer exactly backwards. Now, James is specifically addressing cases where we ask God for material blessings that we don't need simply because we want to indulge ourselves. And we covered that in week two of our series of messages. But I believe we can apply this principle of selfish motives more broadly. For example, let's suppose we face a major decision in life. We might make that decision without even consulting God at all. And then we may go to God in prayer and say something like, Heavenly Father, this is what I've planned. Please bless my plans. Now, I think that's prideful and self-indulgent. And instead, I think we should pray, Heavenly Father, what would you have me to do? You see, that's humble. That's submissive. And a prayer like that shows God that we want his guidance. And we need his guidance because it just might be that his solution to the situation we're facing might be different than ours. Yet we won't know if we just selfishly ask for his blessing and don't ask for his wisdom. 
It's also possible to ask for good things, but, but to ask in selfish ways. When I think of this, I'm reminded of a friend I had in college, and he very much wanted to get married. Now, that, that's a good thing. But he sat down and wrote out a list of qualifications for his wife. A detailed list of her personality traits, her hair color, her height, her talents, and oh yes, her spiritual gifts. And then he prayed and said, God, that's the kind of woman I want you to bring into my life. I think that's rather presumptuous. And if we think about it and listen to the way we pray, I believe we will discover that there's all kinds of ways that you and I can pray selfishly. And God, because He's a loving Father, is going to listen, and yet if we ask for things that are selfish, if we ask for things that are foolish, if we ask for things that are harmful or self-indulgent, God's answer is going to be no. He will answer no to protect us from ourselves. So approaching God with selfish motives is just one of the reasons why God may not answer some of our prayers in the way that, he li- that we like. It's one of the reasons for a no. Another reason is unresolved sin, which King David of Israel mentions in one of his prayers. I'd like us to look at Psalm 66, verses 18 to 19. David is praying and he writes, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. As a side note, I love the fact that David writes down his prayers. I started doing that and I find when I write down my prayers, I pray differently than when I pray aloud. I connect with God in a different way. So if you've never done that, I encourage you to give it a try. Write down your prayers and see if that might enrich your experience of prayer. And because David wrote down so many of his prayers, we have the privilege of learning from him about how to pray and how to pour out our heart to God. And here we see David expressing thankfulness because God evidently has responded favorably to one of his previous prayers. David's grateful for that, but he recognizes that God did not have to listen if David was cherishing a sin in his life. Cherishing, that's, that's a loaded word. David's not describing that moment when we just sort of blow it. He's talking about those times when we wholeheartedly embrace a sinful behavior. And David knows all about the consequences of that kind of thing. Because we know from the story of Scripture that there are times when David has messed up royally. And so he knows that when he is devoted to God and not devoted to sin, it's more natural for God to respond to his requests. And I think this makes sense because if we're cherishing a sin, it sets up a competition in our heart. Our love for God is going to be in a battle with our love for that sin. And if we cherish a sin, we're far more likely to fall off one of the prayer cliffs that we talked about two weeks ago. We may feel distant from God so we don't pray at all. Or because our priorities are out of balance, we're more likely to pray selfishly if we do choose to pray. 
So how do we tell if we're cherishing a sin? Here's one of the tests I use. How much effort do we put into rationalizing it? We'll rationalize behavior that we want to hold on to, won't we? For example, I've met Christians who love to gossip. And they will explain this behavior in a very spiritual way. We're just sharing prayer requests. I've met Christians with huge problems with anger. And they will spiritualize their rage by saying, I don't get angry. I express righteous indignation. I've had Christian men and women who use pornography tell me, I'm just looking at pictures. I'm not hurting anyone. What a lie. What a lie. If we indulge ourselves with pornography, we are supporting an industry that uses, abuses, and degrades human beings who are made in the image of God. And we're hurting ourselves because we're inflaming our lust and we're viewing people as objects, objects of our own gratification. We need to listen to how we talk. We need to listen to how we pray. We need to look at our lives and recognize that if we cherish any sin, whether it's lust or anger or gossip or pride or anything else, it will inhibit our prayers. It will inhibit our prayers because we'll drift away from God and we'll pray less than we should. And if we do choose to pray, God may choose to answer no since we're being willfully disobedient. And God's hope if we're heading down that path, is that we will wake up and make better choices. And sometimes his wake-up call is not giving us what we ask for. That's a profound way for him to get our attention. So what should we do? If we're praying, and it doesn't seem like God is, and it seems like God is not answering, then it's time for some honest reflection. And I think we should pray this way. Heavenly Father, please look into my mind and my heart and my life and show me if there's anything that is keeping me apart from you. Show me if there's any wedge in our relationship. And if we offer a prayer like that sincerely, we may discover that we're praying selfish prayers. Or we may discover that we're allowing some sin to crowd out our love for God. And if we do discover these things, if God does reveal them to us, then we can pray about that. And we can say, Father, I admit that my priorities are messed up. Please help me to lay aside those things that hinder me from living each day as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And that's a prayer God will love to answer. Asking selfishly, cherishing sin. These are two significant reasons why God might answer no to your prayers or to mine. And there's another issue we need to consider, though, and it comes from a very different perspective. And we learn about this in another prayer of King David that we read in Psalm chapter 13 in verses 1 and 2. Listen to how David prays this time. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? In the previous prayer, David was thankful for God's answer. And now he's frustrated 
because God's making him wait. And he can't stand the fact that God seems silent and he can't understand why he must wait for God to take action. Have you ever prayed like this? Expressing frustration with the fact that God was making you wait? I've prayed like this many times in my life. I prayed like this because many times I've been so frustrated that for some reason I can't figure out God's not on my timetable. Why doesn't God line up his priorities with mine? And the fact is it's tough to wait if we feel the need is urgent. And it's tough to wait because we are so conditioned by our culture to be impatient people. And yet, in the kingdom of God, sometimes we need to wait. Sometimes there is great purpose in waiting. So why might God sometimes want us to wait? It may be a matter of timing. Last week, we briefly touched on the story of Zechariah, a Jewish priest, and his wife Elizabeth. And and as we saw, he and his wife had to wait many, many years for their prayer to be answered. They were praying for God to give them a child. So why did God make them wait? Well, it was because it was about God's timing and not theirs. The birth of their son did not simply affect them. The birth of their their son was tied into other significant spiritual events. And sometimes we must wait because God is bringing together a whole variety of pieces to accomplish his purposes in the world. And it's so important for me to recognize and for you to recognize that sometimes the answer to our prayer is not just about us. What we're praying for may, in fact, affect others. Sometimes God wants us to wait because it's an opportunity to deepen our trust. As many of you know, my my wife Julie and I took a self-funded sabbatical after concluding our last ministry. We wanted some time off to pray and discern God's will for the next season of life and ministry. So we decided we would use some funds that had been set aside for retirement. We would live on that and we would pray and we would wait. And we figured that that should last about six months. It lasted 15 months. (laughs) It was a daily reminder that God's timetable is not our timetable. And then I believe God also wanted us to wait, not just to teach us about trusting his timing, but he wanted to deepen our trust in his purposes. He wanted to strengthen our commitment to his calling. And that was critical because even though I was going to continue on in ministry, I was pursuing a brand new direction. In my last church, I had filled a role that we called teaching pastor, and and that meant I did some preaching and teaching, but I was not the primary pulpit minister. And God made it clear that in the next season of life, I was to preach. And so I was candidating for those kinds of positions. Now here's where it gets interesting. While Julie and I were waiting, I started having opportunities come along to be a teaching pastor. It's a job I'd been doing. And that happened more than once. And the longer we waited, and the more I watched our retirement savings get depleted, 
the more tempting it was to take one of those other positions. And yet I couldn't just turn my back on the very clear direction that God had given to me. Waiting was a chance to show God, and just as importantly, a chance to prove to myself that I would put my commitment to God and my commitment to God's purposes ahead of my personal finances. And so Julie and I prayed and waited. And we prayed and waited. We did this because it was a matter of trust. And then God brought us to Garden Way Church. And as I look back on what happened, I realize that my commitment to this role and this calling and this church has been strengthened because we waited. It wasn't easy. We had to go through a lot of no's before we got to the yes of Garden Way, and waiting was emotionally, emotionally costly and financially costly. And yet there was great purpose in waiting. And if we had tried to rush things, if in our own wisdom we would have tried to take a shortcut on God, we would have missed out on all of it. There was great blessing in praying and waiting on God. So here's my question. How can praying and waiting on God be a blessing in your life? This issue of waiting is complex and it has many dimensions to it. And there's another aspect of it I'd like us to think about. Here's what sometimes happens. We make a legitimate request of God. It's about a need, a very real need, and we're not praying selfishly, and our life is not cluttered up with some sin. And yet, as we pray and wait, God doesn't give us what we ask for. And so we pray and we wait and we pray and we wait, and we may assume that God's answer is not yet. We may assume that if we wait long enough, then God will grant our request. However, just because we're waiting patiently doesn't mean that God eventually will give us what we want. We can wait patiently, and God's answer still might be no. So when we're in a season of waiting, we can never approach that as if it's an effort to just to sort of wait God out. And instead, we need to approach waiting as an opportunity to trust God more. And if God does say no, he wants us to trust that answer, even if it's not the answer we want. He wants us to trust that his answer is the best one for us. And that's where all of this boils down to. That's the bottom line, learning to trust God's no. And the Apostle Paul shows us how to do that. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, here's God's answer, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, God says, is made perfect in weakness. 
How does Paul respond to that that answer from God? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. This is a fascinating piece of Scripture with a profound lesson for us to get hold of. Why is God doing this? He's doing it because the Apostle Paul is in a role where it would be so easy to become spiritually full of pride. He gets hundreds of people connected to Jesus Christ. He starts scores of new churches from scratch. He mentors pastors and elders and deacons. He writes letters of instruction and encouragement to Christians like this one here that we're reading from. And he does that under the personal guidance of the Holy Spirit. With all that happening, it would be so easy to get puffed up with pride. God wants Paul to hold on to humility. So he allows Satan to give Paul a metaphorical thorn in the flesh. It's not a literal thorn, it's a metaphor. And we don't know what this thorn is because Paul doesn't tell us. So we don't know if it's some physical ailment or some kind of spiritual battle. What Paul wants us to know is this. He is in torment because of what he's experiencing. So how does he respond to this painful situation? He prays. He prays fervently and repeatedly. He asks his heavenly Father to give him some relief. And as he prays and he waits, there is no relief still hurting and that's exactly the kind of situation where we so often say God did not answer my prayer but Paul did get an answer it just happened to be no he didn't get the answer he wanted he got the answer that was best and sometimes the answer we want from God is not the answer we need And sometimes, like with Paul, the best answer is a difficult experience that dampens our pride, that teaches us humility, and deepens our faith. And Paul is able to hear this answer because he's listening. He prays and waits expectantly and listens to God. I I don't know how he heard the answer. God might have spoken in an audible voice. Maybe it was some significant thought that God just seared into his brain. Maybe there was some wise counsel from a brother or sister in the family of God. But somehow, some way, Paul heard from God and he got his answer. And we need to learn to listen. And I don't know about you, but I find that when I'm listening, God will speak to me in all kinds of ways. He speaks to me a lot through the truth of the Bible. He speaks a lot to me through the wisdom of my very godly wife. He speaks to me through the wisdom of my grown children. He speaks to me through the godly counsel I get from brothers and sisters in the faith. And the fact is we can see and hear and discover and know God's answers to our prayers, but only if we're looking for them. We need to pray and wait expectantly. 
And that's what Paul models for us. He prays, and then he hears God's answer, and then he chooses to wholeheartedly trust God's no. And as a result, he's able to take this incredibly painful experience and receive it as an actual gift from God. Why is it a gift? It's a gift because it keeps him humble. It's a gift because it strengthens his faith. It's a gift because the loving Heavenly Father has determined that this is what Paul needs in this moment. And therefore, Paul can delight in his own weakness because he chooses to trust in God's strength. And so he even can celebrate God's no. And he only can do that because he is convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will only give him what is best. And sometimes it's a no. Now, now this is a very challenging issue to deal with. It's not easy getting our heads around a negative response from God, but it's something that we need to learn if we want to grow in our experience of prayer and if we want to grow in our faith. I started to learn about God's no's many years ago when I worked in the business world long before I entered the ministry. And I went through a season where I started to hate my job. I no longer enjoyed the work, and I was getting very frustrated with many of my coworkers. They were driving me crazy. And so I decided it was time to get out. I didn't ask that of God. I just decided that on my own. And that's how I prayed. And my prayers were something like this. Father, get me out of here. <laughs> I hate the work. My coworkers are driving me crazy. I'm not satisfied and I want to change. Please provide a new job. Well, I sent out lots of resumes. I had lots of interviews. Didn't get a new job. So then I started to complain in prayer to God that he wasn't listening. He wasn't answering my prayers. Still, no new job. And finally, I realized that God's silence was a wake-up call. I realized that I had been offering a very self-centered, demanding prayer. And so I changed the way I prayed. And I started to pray more like this. Heavenly Father, if this is where you want me to be in this season of my life, then please fill me with a great desire to do this work. Help me to do it willingly. Help me to do it well. And please give me a love and respect and appreciation for my coworkers. Help me to see them the way you see them. And God answered that prayer. And I started to find a new sense of satisfaction in my work. And most importantly, I started to build better relationships with my coworkers, stronger, deeper relationships, and in some cases, the kind of relationships where we were able to talk together about the spiritual dimension of life. And as a result of that, a few months later, I had the privilege of baptizing one of my coworkers into the faith, and then his wife, and then his son. I am so glad that God wisely did not indulge my selfish prayer to just get out of that job. There was a profound reason that he said no to my request. And because he didn't answer my prayer in the way that I wanted, there's three more people who became followers of Jesus Christ. The citizenship of the kingdom of heaven was increased. 
I still struggle sometimes with God's nose. And when I do, I remind myself of that experience. I remind myself that sometimes the answer to my prayers is not just about me. And whenever God says no, I try to lean on him and I remind myself that I need to trust him because he does know what's best for me and he knows what's best for the people that he sends into my life. I believe there's a great lesson here for all of us in prayer and that as we pray and listen for God's answers, we need to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. We pray, we wait, we listen, look, and search for God's answer. And if it's yes, oh, we rejoice. And if it's no, we rejoice. We can embrace God's no's with enthusiasm. Because when we make that decision to trust God's no, just as Paul did, that's when we truly see the power of God at work in us and through us and among us. Let's trust God when he says no.